God is not slow to let himself appear humiliated at the hands of Gentiles in order to bring about his ultimate purpose. depending on how you count them, there's multiple visions in the book. There's, of course, the main vision that comes in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the central vision of the book. That's the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, of the man, if you will, that's made from four materials. And that, of course, represents the four kingdoms. And then there's the stone that no, man, that no hand has cut, which crushes the statue. That's the central vision. That vision, then there's another smaller vision of the tree that gets chopped down in chapter 4. That's a vision specifically about Nebuchadnezzar. But then the main vision of chapter 2 gets expanded upon in chapter 7 when the imagery then turns to the four beasts. And then there's the little horn. That's the persecutor of God's people. But then chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 expand on the vision of chapter 7. And chapter 7 is in fact expanding upon the vision of chapter 2. So our focus, our primary focus, will be the episodes of Daniel's life, but at the same time what we'll attempt to do is incorporate into that the teachings and the understandings that come from the visions themselves as well. And by so doing, we should come away with a good understanding of what the whole book of Daniel has for us. So with that being said, let's begin. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without a blemish of good appearance. And we'll stop there. So a few things for us to begin seeing here, even beginning from verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So the third year of his reign, his reign began shortly after the battle of Carchemish. So this would have put it, uh, he began his reign at 609 B.C. Remember B.C. we're counting down in numbers. So he began about 609. So that puts it right about 609. 5 or 606 B.C., which is the year in which Daniel, of course, was taken during the first siege of Jerusalem. So in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So it begins sort of -of matter-of-factly, but even in this matter-of-fact giving of the facts here, just to set up the story for us, even in so doing, he is still giving us some information that's setting up the grand theme of the book, the grand battle, if you will, of good and evil. So we see, first of all, in the name Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, that name literally means, O God Nebu. He was one of the major Babylonian gods. The major Babylonian god was Marduk. We'll see him just a little bit later. But O God Nebu, so you can even see that in Nebuchadnezzar's name. O God Nebu, or Nebu, Protect my boundaries or protect my children, one way or another. We can even see, even in the name of Nebuchadnezzar, we can see the meaning here is later on Nebuchadnezzar is going to brag about his city and his boundaries. 
And that's going to bring the, God, the judgment of the true living God, the ancient of days, as Daniel calls it. He's going to bring his judgment down on Nebuchadnezzar. But even in his name, he's proclaiming this praise to, to the god Nebu or Nebu, the Babylonian god. During the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So let's pause just a minute with Babylon. Now we all know what Babylon is in modern day Iraq. We all know this from our scriptures because the scriptures talk about Babylon so frequently. But it's worth our time to pause and just recognize what we come up against when we see Babylon in the scriptures. Babylon should be considered by the readers of scripture to be the capital of the kingdom of evil. In the same way in which Jerusalem or Zion is considered the capital of the kingdom of God on earth, in the same way Babylon is the capital, it is the center of gravity of all that's evil in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament scriptures. So the the city of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, got its start way back in Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, we see really the true beginning of opposition to God in this episode known as the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, first of all, we're told that they go to the, in Genesis chapter 11, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. So we see that same phrase here in the beginning of Daniel's book, the land of Shinar. Daniel, the writer, wants us to make sure that not only is he talking about Babylon, he's talking about the land of Shinar, the same land, the same region in which Genesis 11 mentions as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, settled there. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So the Lord dispersed them. So we know the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel, you may not have thought much about the Tower of Babel and the significance of the tower. It's one of those stories that's a good Sunday school story, a good vacation Bible school story. But you may have never thought deeply about the meaning of the Tower of Babel. But the Tower of Babel is monumental in its theological meaning because that is the first organized effort of mankind to oppose God. It was direct opposition of God's command. God's command, His very first command that He gave to mankind was be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So God's command was go out, spread, fill the earth, and subdue it. And the Tower of Babel was all about, we just read it, the opposite. Let's gather. Let's collect. Let's assemble. Let's make this place where we can reach the heavens on our own. We don't need God. He told us to spread. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to gather and we're going to put our forces together, put our resources together, and we are going to reach the heavens without God. And of course we know the story that this God then comes down and He confuses their languages. Isn't that an interesting connection, by the way? In the confusing of languages, now we have the child of God, the messenger of God, who even though languages have been confused, still uses the languages of the world to pronounce the message of the living God, who is the one who confused the languages. Just like at Pentecost, 
Just like at Pentecost, the God who confused the languages can still speak his message through those confused languages. So this land of Shinar is where the Tower of Babel, and you can hear it even in the name, Babel, Babylon, that was the beginning of what would become eventually the kingdom of Babylon. And then after the destruction of the literal city of Babylon, that would become the metaphorical center of gravity for the kingdom of evil from that point all the way to, you guessed it, Revelation 18. When we hear finally that glorious cry, fallen, fallen, finally is Babylon. And from those two points, from Genesis 11 to Revelation 18, Babylon occurs over and over and over and over and over. Just grab a concordance and see how many times it comes up in the prophets because it becomes not just a kingdom of evil, it becomes the very symbol of evil. It becomes the very flag of evil here on earth. It becomes the capital of what is the kingdom of evil on earth, this kingdom of Babylon. That's why Peter is going to say, writing to the people of God from Rome, he's going to say, those who are in Babylon greet you. This metaphorical language to say we are in the very city of evil here in Rome. Now, put the two of these things together. Verse 1, Babylon comes up against Jerusalem. Could it be a clearer, plainer confrontation between good and evil? The very city of Zion, the holy city, being sieged by the core of evil. So this very picture, this sets the stage for the book. The book is about this grand battle between good and evil, whom the sovereign Lord oversees. And even in the midst of this grand battle between good and evil, he's going to allow the center of gravity for the kingdom of evil to prevail and carry his people into captivity. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But he's going to allow that to prevail and to seemingly to carry the day. But the point of Daniel is God is sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over the four beasts. He's sovereign over the statue of four materials. He's sovereign over furnaces. He's sovereign over disembodied hands that write on the wall. He's sovereign over lions. And he's sovereign over Babylon. And Babylon is his instrument. So we see Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against king of Judah. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And the Lord gave. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, that's obscured because that's not the word there. The King James gets it right. The ESV gets it right. The Lord gave. There's a theme. We're not going to get into this theme yet. We'll get into this probably next time. But there's a theme. The Lord gave. Daniel's going to use that phrase over and over. The Lord gave the people over to Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord gave the vessels of the temple over to Nebuchadnezzar. But the Lord gave to Daniel the ability to understand dreams and visions. 
the Lord gave to Daniel and his friends the ability to remain healthy on the diet of vegetables and water. The Lord gave and the Lord gave. And so we see even now the theme is beginning. God in His sovereignty over the nations gives His people over to the kingdom of evil, but the Lord who is sovereign over the nations also gives to His people the protection that they will need in the midst of that. So we see that in the lion's den. We see that in the fiery furnace. But let me just pause right here and let's, let's just see how this is going to play out even in the visions, the visions from heaven of the world events. Take a look at chapter 7 and verse 21. Chapter 7 and verse 21, this is the second major vision, the vision of the four beasts. Verse 21, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Do you see it there? Do you see the sovereign Lord of all creation preserving His people? Giving protection to His people. We see it, we'll see it in every chapter. Chapter 11 and verse 35. Here we see it again. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. In visionary language, in apocalyptic type language, Daniel is saying the same thing from the perspective of heaven as he says in Aramaic from the perspective of earth, which is to say the God of the nations uses even the evil kingdom of Babylon. He uses even the little horn to bring about his will because he still protects and preserves his servants, his people in the midst. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. But he also gave some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. That would have been the temple of Marduk. And so here these vessels, these silver and gold vessels of the temple are taken. And they're taken and put into the temple of Marduk. Now about 60 years later, there's going to be another king. His name is Belshazzar. And he's going to take those same vessels and he's going to be drinking from those very same vessels when the disembodied hand writes on the wall. And God's people who are given not only the ability to understand dreams and visions, but they're given the ability to read the writing on the wall. We're going to love that imagery when we get there. To read the writing on the wall. Also recognize that even though these vessels of the temple, are given over. Daniel's going to say, nonetheless, as Ezra's going to tell us a little bit later in Ezra chapter 1, that they will be returned. So there's these vessels that are taken, and they're taken into the temple of Marduk. It's easy enough to see what everyone would have thought of that, because in Old Testament culture, what that meant very clearly was that the God of the conquering people was stronger than the God of the people that were conquered. That's what everybody understood that to be. We think back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Remember the episode where the Ark of the Covenant was captured and taken and put into the tent of Dagon. And the Philistines thought, oh, our God, Dagon, is so much stronger than the Israelite God because clearly he, we've captured the Ark. And the Ark is now in the tent of Dagon. And then, remember, the next morning they came back and Dagon was prostrate before the Ark. And, and then later his hands and his head were chopped off. So... That was just an illustration to show to us that that's what everybody thought. Everybody thought that when your God's temples and your God's 
pieces out of his temple are captured, then clearly we, we all know what that means. We all know that this other God was stronger than your God. So the point to see here is God is not afraid to appear humiliated before Gentiles in order to bring about the plan of his people. That's so important to see. God does not shy away from appearing to be humiliated before Gentiles in order to bring about the ultimate plan for His people. What's the greatest place that we see this? Yes, the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus cries out from the, from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the people think, <laughs> He thought He was something. We see what He is now. He's just a humiliated, dying Beggar of a man with not even property to dispose of. Yeah, we see what came of him. God is not slow to let himself appear humiliated at the hands of Gentiles in order to bring about his ultimate purpose. You know, we are right to call upon the name of God We are right to base our prayers in the glorifying of His name. But at the same time, we should never let ourselves think that God will not let His name be sullied. He will. In order to bring about His ultimate purpose, He will. And He does it here. Just think of all the cheer. Think of what the Babylonians are saying. Think about the songs that they're singing now about how Marduk is so much greater than Yahweh. Marduk came up against Yahweh and we saw who the better God was. Makes us cringe to even think of such things. But God allows it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website, where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.